Hey there, I'm Becca Campbell, your pediatric sleep consultant. Welcome to the Little Z's Sleep Podcast. My mission is to help you resolve your child's exhausting sleep habits. This is episode 120, and we are actually going to demystify two terms. Two terms that I see crisscrossed and mixed up all the time in the sleep training world. We're talking attachment parenting versus secure attachment. Let me just share with you real quick that these terms are different. And in this episode, I have asked two psychologist moms to come on and talk to me. One of them is a former client, Dr. Jenna Elgin, and her business partner, Dr. Shauna Alvarez. They joined me on this podcast to actually go through what these terms mean. We're going to talk about the research behind secure attachment and how this plays into sleep training and why this is absolutely something that should be measured by mental maternal health. I'm excited about this episode. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Y'all, welcome into the podcast, Dr. Shauna Alvarez and Dr. Jenna Elgin. I'm so happy you're here from Helping Families Thrive. This is a much anticipated podcast. I've saved so many of your posts on Instagram, and I'm really excited to chat. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. So, okay, first of all, tell us where you guys are located. Same city? Well, that's actually more complicated right now. We are both um, based in Seattle. I am currently in Canada where I have family. The board, They closed the border, so I wanted to be near family. But we are operating internationally at the moment. We met in graduate school in Seattle 12 years ago, and we have been friends and colleagues in some sort ever since then. That's awesome. That's what I was wanting to know. The background was, okay, how did you guys get connected then? So that's really good to know. Well, this um, this podcast topic, there's so many, uh, there's infinity amount of uh, just questions I could ask you about parenting mm-hmm. and sleep world. And let's talk more about tantrums. Like there's so many different topics we could cover, but a few, maybe weeks ago, or maybe it was a month or so ago, um, y'all shared a an Instagram story and it was talking about secure attachment. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions, especially with sleep training, is this concept of attachment parenting and secure attachment, that in some people's minds, those are the same thing. And in some people's minds, you cannot have secure attachment if you sleep train. And if you're attachment parent, then you can have no sleep boundaries and all these different things. And so the, the whole concept and the whole, like, I'm just so grateful to have you guys here is because I know you're going to say it so much more eloquently than I could ever and have all the background to talk about it. Um, I really want to dig into, okay, what is attachment parenting? What Mm -hmm. is secure attachment? Where did these things come from and how can we make sense of it? So I would love to pose these questions and have you guys talk through. So first walk us through what is attachment parenting? Absolutely. And so before I start, I want to share with your listeners that one of our primary missions at Helping Families Thrive is to combat misinformation that's on social media, that's on the internet around topics related to parenting, because there is a lot. And we are um, very um, committed to providing information that is um, peer-reviewed research-backed. So that is different than um, a lot of the information that you might find out there. Research tends to be a lot more nuanced than the flashy headlines that are on social media. So to answer your question about attachment parenting, so attachment parenting is a philosophy. Mm -hmm. So it was coined by a pediatrician and his wife, Dr. William Sears. 
And this was in the 1980s and 1990s is when this um, started coming about and they wrote a book on attachment parenting. And their whole premise is that um, parents build a strong attachment with their child through a lot of, with by a list of behaviors. There's seven core behaviors that they believe lead to a secure attachment. And they even state that they believe that attachment parenting immunizes which is a very strong word, (laughs) children against many of the social and emotional diseases that plague our society. So they've really, they have this theory or not even a theory, a parenting philosophy that they believe protects children from the world. And it is values physical proximity to a caregiver. And this is completely unrelated to attachment science. And I'll let Shauna go into what attachment science is, but there's absolutely no relation to the study of attachment, which has been around longer than the philosophy of attachment parenting, but they're completely unrelated. And so, you know, to go to attachment parenting and and our mission, you know, right now, if you look up, if you go to the California Evidence-Based Clearinghouse, one of our favorite websites, where you can actually look up any program related to child welfare and intervention program and look up the level of evidence versus potential level of harm for or against any intervention, there actually is just no peer-reviewed research at all on attachment parenting, which I think is is one of the misconceptions here, right? It's not actually an intervention. It's not something that's been studied. Um, But, you know, there are lots of other evidence-based programs on there that can be referred to. So when we look at what there is science about, what attachment science is, that's very different. Um, To understand attachment science, you have to kind of know the history, the context in which um, it it came about, right? So Bowlby and Ainsworth, right? So Bowlby initially was this scientist. um, He was really interested in the the impact of separation on kids who had been separated from their parents during wartime. And this was kind of related to his own history of having been separated from his own family and sent away to um, a boarding school when he was young. And then Mary Ainsworth, who doesn't get talked about as much, but really should, um, she was his student. And she was really interested in observations she had made about um, parent-child dyad, particularly mother-child dyads in Uganda. And as she watched these babies kind of use their mom as what's termed as a secure base. Um, This, I think, starts to foreshadow a little bit into another common misconception, which is that Secure attachment is really not about constantly being close to, but rather being able to confidently explore your environment, which is what she observed in these children in Uganda, and then return and check in because you know that that loving, stable caregiver is still there and available, even though they're not right there, (laughs) right? They're not really more about learning independence and feeling confident enough to become independent than it is about staying physically connected to a person. Right. And that observation is what actually gave birth to attachment science. They then came back right to the U S and they're like, okay, how do we activate the attachment system in this culture in the U S which is so different from Uganda. Right. And out of that came the strange situation um, experiment. Jenna, you want to explain the strange situation a little bit? So after her experience in Uganda, she came back and I believe it was in Chicago and she looked at some middle-class white, primarily white families, because obviously the situation in Uganda is different than um, in the United States. And she developed this, um, what later became known as the strain situation. And it's just a couple of minutes 
and it's with babies generally from six months to 12 months that are studied doing this experiment. And what they do is they have the baby and the caregiver come in and play with each other in a room and they're observed. And then they um, have a stranger come in to the room. And then after a little bit of time, the parent leaves and then the parent returns. And so during all of this, they're recording how the baby responds to this. And they're not actually looking at how the baby responds when the parent leaves. We know that infant temperament and child temperament can vary. Um, where some kids might get really upset when their caregiver leaves. Some kids might not show a lot of distress. And that's actually not the important piece of the strange situation. Because a lot of that has a lot more to do with temperament than attachment. Um, what they're really looking at is the reunion. So when mom comes back, how does the baby respond? And so a securely attached baby um, is going to be comforted relatively easy when mom returns. So that maybe they're initially distressed, but they're able to um, get comfort from their mom. Whereas an insecurely attached baby maybe is more ambivalent to mom, doesn't respond at all, or has kind of this mixed reaction. And so I want to give a caveat to everyone listening to not analyze <laughs> your <laughs> own children with this framework. Um, Shauna and I, um, we actually, we know better and we still will do this sometimes when we're reading literature. We do a lot of research on different things. We're like, you know, we'll analyze our own uh, children and our own <laughs> relationships, um, even though we know we shouldn't be doing that. It can be really <laughs> to, to kind of pick up on maybe the one challenging um, interaction you've had with your kid and extrapolate it when you hear some of these things. So this it's is so a important. nuance science yeah. where these people are very highly trained in looking for these different behaviors and that none of us are going to be very good at reading our own attachment um, with our children just based on what we've said here today. Um, and, and what we know from this research is that most babies are securely attached. About 65%, I believe, of babies across cultures are securely attached um, and about 35% are insecurely attached. And there's a couple different groups of insecure attachments. I won't go into detail on those, but um, that's kind of what we know about the strange situation. And that continues to be how we study attachment to this day. So this um, was developed, I believe, in the 60s. And now this is still the best practiced way of assessing attachment. Yeah. And I think, you know, coming back to your question about what's, what's the difference there is, you know, when we look at this idea that wow, most babies are actually securely attached. And there's quite a bit of variety in baby wearing, not very baby wearing, formula, breastfeeding, cross-cultural variations, right? Um, and yet most kids are actually securely attached. And so, you know, this goes into some of where our concern is, is this kind of anxious gripping around, oh my gosh, I have to do these precise things in order to have a securely attached baby. And that's just not true. It's just harmful misinformation. And I think I want to bring up one point of um, attachment parenting um, is this idea Dr. Sears talked about prevention of crying. That was a big part of his is a big part of the philosophy is almost to do whatever you can to prevent crying. 
And that's where we know baby wearing can actually be really helpful, especially during early um, the early months. It can help soothe a fussy baby. And that can be kind of a, a, a place that brings up a lot of anxiety for parents if they're trying to constantly prevent crying, especially when we know that distress, kids experiencing distress in and of itself isn't necessarily problematic. And there's actually this idea of positive stress where kids are able to learn resilience through experiencing tolerable tolerable levels of stress and developing the tools to get through it, the coping skills to get through it. And so that's kind of, you know, in practice as clinicians, sometimes we get a little concerned about this idea of always jumping in to make sure your child doesn't experience distress because we've worked with a lot of those families. And actually a lot of our work sometimes is helping parents tolerate a little bit more distress from their children. Yeah. Because that actually can lead to better coping for both the child and the parent in the long run. I can't imagine how much stress that brings the parent, right? Like I can never let my child get upset. I can never let my baby cry or fuss. Like there is so, that's the only way that a baby can communicate the only way. And I'm wondering if there has been more now, you know, him, Dr. Sears saying that in the, you know, eighties, has there been any follow-up study on this? Uh, I know it's hard to do a study maybe about this, but on like what's happened as that philosophy has gone on. Um, I think that would be interesting to look at maternal, right? Like maternal stress factor, even there's so many things that I wonder about. Like, I want to know, okay, the parents who had these children, what was their marriage like 20 years later? What was the child's relationship 20 years later? I think it would be so interesting to look at that. Um, but as you, as as Dr. Shauna said, it's, it's a lot of like the personal choice, right? Like, I mean, it's not to say that, um, this is, this is just a philosophy. This is not, uh, the rule book in stone. This is a philosophy that someone out there may resonate with for various reasons. Right. Yeah. And we're not anti-attachment parenting. Um, and one of the things that Mary Ainsworth actually found in her attachment research around breastfeeding and secure attachment was that it was how the mother felt about the breastfeeding relationship that was more predictive of a secure relationship than breastfeeding in and of itself. So, <laughs> That's such an important piece of all of this is the emotional health of the the parent. Um, This probably goes for dads too. I don't know if there's as much uh, research on that piece, but um, if, if a practice is causing anxiety for a caregiver, whether that be breastfeeding or a sleeping arrangement or something like that, that's going to be more problematic than not doing that practice. And so it really comes down to how, how that's working for that family, that behavior. And, and, you know, so if these principles of attachment parenting align really well with someone's values and are not causing distress and are bringing them joy, and they're able to delight in their kid in doing these things, then that's great. But that's just, you know, not everything's going to resonate with every family or every family situation. And we need to to remember that no, you know, list of behaviors in and of itself can predict secure attachment. And, but that's like a, this brings us back to like our science doesn't sell and our problem with lack of nuance, right? Like Jenna, what you described is really 
nuanced. And, you know, I remember we both worked in the same research labs um, throughout our doctoral programs. And I remember, you know, we would finish a study and have findings and publish papers. And then we'd sit in a meeting and be like, oh my gosh, did you read the article that was written about it? Because the headline (laughs) absolutely did not represent the nuance of our findings, right? And this happens constantly, but now it spreads like you know, wildfire because of social media. Um, and so, you know, nuance just isn't as interesting. It's way more interesting and to be cynical, way more profitable to feed on people's fears. And what more primal fear do we have <laughs> than, you know, having insecure attachment? Attachment fear-mongering is real, right? If the parents that we talk to in our clinical practice and, and also ourselves, like our inner voices, it's like, oh God, if I, if I don't baby wear, I'm going to disrupt attachment. If I don't closely, I'm going to disrupt attachment. If I do a timeout, I'm going to disrupt attachment. Um, if I, you know, am not positive in response to every behavior, I'm going to disrupt attachment. And it's not only is this scientifically false, it's also, we were going to strongly say it's dangerous and it's unethical, right? Um, there's all this stuff out now that's, you know, research shows and, and elicits so much trust, but it's become this like, it's like shopping for food, for food in a grocery store with no list of ingredients, right? Like that's, that's legally mandated that you can look and see like, oh, is this going to work for me? What's really in this? And there's just no quality control out there for parenting information, right? And, um, and when it comes to attachment, that's become honestly unsafe. We don't know that attachment parenting disrupts attachment or helps attachment, right? What we know impacts attachment is parental distress. If a parent is depressed, if a parent is anxious, it is going to be much harder, like Jenna said, to delight in your kid, which is the cornerstone of attachment, right? So if you're killing yourself trying to be purely positive, if you're killing yourself trying to do sleep training or trying to co-sleep, like, right, this nuance then that's going to impact you, which means your kid can't be okay because you're not okay. And that's and what we're trying to get out there. That research, that's actually yeah. shown in research studies that moms with depression have more, have babies with, inse- more likely to have babies with insecure attachment than mothers without depression. And we also know that sleep training has been shown to improve mom's depressive symptoms. So for a mom who's experiencing depression, that should be our target, right? How can we help that mom experience less depressive symptoms? Because we know that that is going to be more related to to her ability to, to have secure attachment with her baby. And if sleep training is one component of that, it is my opinion, this is not in research, that sleep training can be one approach that could help that and conceivably improve a mom's depressive symptoms because we have research to show that and thus be beneficial for a relationship. Yeah. And there's probably so many listening right now. I used to say this line that um, we know, studies tell us, broken sleep makes you feel terrible. You don't really have to read the research to know that that's true, like right? Like we all know that. We all know if you wake up every hour, you're going to feel miserable in the morning because you're fully emerging out of the sleep. Your sleep cycles are broken. You're not getting the full restorative, you know, benefits of sleep. Same thing. A mom listening right now who is not feeling herself, who recognizes or others are recognizing that she's not herself and understands that she's having these depressive thoughts, 
because she's also having broken sleep. Like there are, there are going to be certain things you're like, yeah, didn't have to read research to know that. Like I know that, but it's so (laughs) helpful to know, to be able to say like, this is why this is happening, right? Like this is a proven thing. And it's, um, it's true. It's not that um, there's two things I wanted to unpack there for a second. The fear mongering, right? I can't, actually cannot tell you how many times that former ad agencies have told us like, oh, we should run this ad about, there was fear, right? Like if you if you don't get your child to sleep like this and blah, 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 it's, this is going to happen. I hated that. I always hated that because you cannot, you cannot twist anyone's arm to do anything, especially in parenting. Unfortunately, in my line of work, you have to hit a rock bottom of your own to be like, hmm. I'd like to change this. And then you make that change. Unfortunately, that has to happen. But um, I think probably the biggest misconception with like, why do people get confused on attachment parenting and secure attachment, that those are different is probably because of of fear and misinformation on social media. And that's so sad, um, but it is so prevalent all over. I mean, the word attachment was used by... Dr. Sears, because that attachment science was a relatively new field and they actually had called it something else prior. I think it was like creative parenting. And then this field of attachment science was kind of growing Mm -hmm. and that kind of shifted their name into this. It it wasn't on accident that they're using this word, right? Um, Despite it not actually being linked together in, in the research. And so I think, I mean, they sound the same just from a semantic standpoint, attachment science, attachment parenting. It's really easy for people who don't understand the science or the nuance to just assume that those are related. I would, if I just heard those two things, I'd be like, oh, they're like talking about the same thing, Mm -hmm. right? And we know secure attachment is good. Just logically, that sounds like a good thing. And so attachment parenting must lead to that. That's, and that's where we find it really unfortunate that, that parents don't have access to this information and it's so nuanced, it's hard to actually even get it out there in a way that is easy to digest. But I think it's also like a, you know, it's a call out to therapists and professionals too, right? Like we have to check each other a little bit, right? Um, in some of the things that we've said, we've we've actually heard from a lot of clinicians that have said like, wow, you're going to say that, you know, good luck. You know, you're not going to have as many followers. <laughs> um, and that and that's okay. You know, that's okay with us. We're willing to take that risk. We have to find some balance here, right? We have to find some balance. And this, this rebranding and relabeling has really caused a lot of confusion. And so if we can call out to other professionals and say, hey guys, like tread carefully when we use these words, use the actual original term for the evidence-based treatment, because you know this leads to some, some clinician way over here charging $10,000 and using this name, this buzzword that actually has nothing to do with the scientific origin, right? So it's, we want to reach out to parents and reassure, and we also want to have this call out to professionals out there like, hey, let's all band together and promise to do this more ethically in a way that's going to benefit parental well-being, right? Oh, and absolutely. We believe that most providers out there are trying to help kids and families. Yeah. Like that, that piece I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe is happening, and it can be really easy to get caught up in misinformation. And One of the things that we do know about attachment science is that good enough is good enough. And we know that in the research 
50 to 70% of attunement. So attunement is the word used in attachment science for this idea of the usually the mom being attuned to her child and responding in a timely and appropriate manner. And 50 to 70% is like as good as it gets in these observational studies. You can't be attuned 24-7. That's not feasible. It's not expected. Um, So this isn't all or nothing. And we also know that repair is a really important piece of this. And that sounds like a really intense word, repair, right? Um, You know, but, you know, if you are misattuned with your child, which we all are going to be at least 30 to 50% of the time at any given day, that making a repair, and that can be as much as, you know, a hug when you do uh, are able to respond to your kiddo or, you know, a smile across the room once you do realize that they're trying to get, giving you a bid for attention. So, I mean, I think just reassuring parents that a big chunk of insecure attachment kiddos are experiencing some pretty intense disruptions, you know, due to things like abuse and neglect that are not at all related to some of the things that we're talking about related to sleep training or timeout or some of these other parenting principles that we talk a lot about. Um, and that, you know, just good enough is, is good enough. And if you're worried about your child's attachment, you're probably doing a lot of things, right. If that's crossing your mind. <laughs> no, it's so true. I, you know, when you're talking about sleep and, um, the misuse of research sometimes, right. Like if you look at um, Dr. Sears' uh, claims about sleep, he does cite research, right? Um, and I actually have a quote here from him. Um, Excessive crying over prolonged periods causes harmful neurological effects that may have permanent implications on the development of sections of their brain. And then there's a list of citations, which normally makes me really, really excited. <laughs> and then um, when you look at the actual studies that are cited, a lot of them are on rats being shocked right? Um, Or they're based on kids that are in horrifically neglectful or dangerous situations. That data gives us really important information, right? It's really, that's good science. The problem is it's been extrapolated to a point that is unrecognizable, right? There's a whole book, like, I think it's called The Upside of Stress that talks about this, that, you know, we've all in parenting and for ourselves become so scared of stress, of de-stress, that we're just avoiding it and running from it. And, you know, we have to take a a deep breath. It's not that we want people to throw their hands up and be like, well, most kids turn out all right. Like, (laughs) that's not it. But it is saying like, okay, what are the basic cornerstones that the research brings us back to, right? Secure attachment is delighting in your child, responding when you can, right? Most of the time. What do we know about outcomes for kids in parenting? A balance of warmth and boundaries. And if you can come back to those tenants, and if you're struggling more than that, to know that it's not, you know, (laughs) it's not because you're a horrible, cold parent that doesn't connect, but rather to look up and seek an evidence-based treatment, like, then we're going to be okay. Absolutely. Moms and dads need to be okay. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of that as well. And, you know, doing the things that we know can help with maternal depression, seeking treatment, sleeping more. I know for me, that was a really big piece. 
with my postpartum depression and anxiety after my first baby, when I finally got sleep, mm. I finally enjoyed parenting. And that, I mean, that, that was a huge shift for me emotionally. And it just, and, and for other parents, it might not be sleep training. It might be something else that allows them to be okay. Yeah. I'll say, you know, I, Jen and I were talking about this before, you know, we know families for which it was the opposite where the, you know, sleep training maybe was causing so much distress that the, you know, the parents were like, you know, what's going to work for us having the baby in the same room, co-sleep, whatever it is, right. That's going to stop us from being (laughs) depressed. And I'm like, great, because that's really what we're trying to, to address here, right. Is making sure that the parents okay. Mm -hmm. So they can be responsive and warm parents. Right. And I'm so glad you said that because different strokes for different folks. We all know that. Like we all know everybody's different. Not Mm -hmm. everybody in the world loves what I teach. People unfollow me every day, right? I mean, that that happens all the time. You just go to our YouTube comments. Like nobody, not everybody is for what I do. And that is okay. You're not supposed to be. I'm not trying to win the whole world over here. I'm just going to help you if you want to do what we do. And that's great. And if not, I actually cannot tell you... um, how many times in the past year um, we've had f- people reach out on email and just be like, I cannot believe you're making my, ch- me, I'm making your child cry and blah, 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 like very mean, but it's not, they're, they're not trying to be rude. They're just exhausted, right? There's an underlying something there. It's not the fact that they're mad at me. They just want, they just need something. They just need help. They're upset that, you know, for whatever reason. And the, the response that we always give is, always graceful, always let in. They're like, Hey, I am not forcing you to do this. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you don't align with my sleep philosophy, that's okay. I actually know people who you could go to instead, you know, like there's a, that's, that's why the beauty of, of having so many sleep consultants in the world, there are so many different ways and different people. Um, but I'm, I'm so glad you said that because for one, there is mis- a lot of misinformation on crying, on what protest is because of that quote that she read by Dr. Sears. Um, there's so much mis, uh, misquoting from different research, from different things that people are just not fully understanding. But oh, also constantly. nobody here is trying to win and, 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 and no sleep consultant should be trying to win someone over to their way. When you're ready, I'm here. That's great. And I'll be here to serve you. But it really is that shift that we don't have to be um, surviving as a parent there is an open world of you could enjoy being a parent. And what does that look like for you? And I think that's important for people to know. And, you know, when you get those responses, I can't help but think that so much of that is fear, right? It it is very, when we talk about finding balance, like, you know, we're very much in the parenting world and it's, we're constantly like warmth and boundaries, warmth and boundaries, right? And to try to find balance is so much harder than to just shift to a black or white extreme, right? It's like the difficult, right? Because you're, if you imagine a seesaw, it's like you're straddling and you're constantly going, oh, i got to scooch this way. Oh, i got to adjust a little that way. That's more challenging, but it's also, you know, it's more uh, aligned with the research, right? It, it really is. And so the people that go to you can have healthy attachment. The people that don't go to you can have healthy attachment, right? The problem is not which program you pick. The problem is doing it out of fear because someone put something out there one day that said, if you do this or else mm-hmm. your child will have long-term attachment problems and relationship problems. Yeah. I have an issue with that. That is not okay. 
Absolutely. And uh, the the few times, thank you know, thankfully, it's not been a ton that people have, you know, said that to, to me, right? Like, well, because you did that, your children will have such a, like you said, their bond will not be as strong. Your, yeah. your, your uh, relationship with your child will not be like this because you did this. And I, I honestly, I feel bad when people say that for them. I have an amazing relationship with my daughters. We have an incredible bond. We have an incredible family and I'm secure in that. Right. Yeah. So there's, it's not that. And I think that again, that's, that's the beauty of the world we live in. There are yeah. so many different ways you can do things. Um, every family is unique and different. And I'm thankful that there's opportunities for people to get help um, from, from you guys, um, from, from sleep consultants. There's, I, I always think it's like, what a time to be alive that you can have access to mm. these things um, in, the, in the best way possible. I know that there's misinformation out there, but highlighting the fact that, you know what, there's actually, this is the truth and this is what's real, um, I think is really important now um, for sure. I had um, two questions that I just wanted to ask you guys, and we can kind of do these in a rapid fire way. The first question having to do with um, sleep training. This is coming from um, Katie inside of our sleep society. She has twins. So she has two-year-old <laughs> twins. And uh, who are hitting, as we call, like right, the terrible twos, which is not not the best quote for them. But you know, she says, um, "How do we handle these terrible two toddler meltdowns while holding boundaries?" Um, and this is a big question that comes when you're sleep training, especially like you're trying to be like, you know, like you said, warmth and boundaries. That's the key here. But mm-hmm. how can you handle those, especially at bedtime when you're trying to get them into bed? How can we handle these? So I think the first thing to specific to bedtime or um, a transition period similar to bedtime, um, thinking about how we can prepare our kids for success. And there's a handful of different things we can do. I really love, Becca, the visual schedule that you give. The visuals for kids can be really helpful to prepare them for the different steps in their routine, creating that consistency, getting your kiddos buy-in. If it's bath, then jammies, then teeth brushing, then story, but that's on your little list. You're following that every day. Um, Also, you know, expecting that this is where they are developmentally and remembering that our job is not necessarily to make them not feel upset, to kind of ride the wave of the toddler emotions and bring our own calm into that. We know emotions are contagious. um, And so the more calm and centered we can be, the more we're going to model that for our kids, but also they're going to feed off of that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also, you know, if you check out our Instagram page, we have a lot of kind of concrete tools as well that can help with some of this. So the way that we give instructions to our kids can be, really predictive of how they respond. So we know toddlers hear a lot of no and stop all day long. And if we can shift our attention to the things that they're doing well during that, right? So if they're starting to protest a bit, but they're still maybe getting their jammies on, can we attend to the jammies getting on? Wow, you're putting that, you're really helping me put that on, even though they're they're kind of protesting. Attend- shifting our attention over to the parts of the behavior we like and want to see more of, and then giving instructions in a really clear way. Instead of using a lot of no and stop, we can um, 
tell them exactly what we need them to do. I want you to do this. I want you to um, put your feet on the ground instead of stop jumping on the bed. So there's different ways that we can uh, speak with our kids that can improve cooperation. And then going back to the warmth, boundaries, and consistency, just following through as much as you can with that warmth. I know this is hard, honey, and it's bedtime and we have to do this. I yeah, love oftentimes that. When, when people ask us, you know, what, what do we do when there's distress? You know, you can validate and still hold a boundary at the same time, right? You, you can absolutely do that. And, um, and the prevention work is really where a lot of this comes in, you know, visual schedules and routines. Jenna and I like to talk about boring levels of predictability, right? It should be, <laughs> it's just so, you know, so consistent between caregivers, the order of that bedtime routine, and making sure that there's, you know, the have tos are done before the want tos. There's kind of a natural carrot at the end. Like you said, Becca, you guys do um, special time now as part of your bedtime routine, right? So that it's it's become this something that has a positive associated with it rather than a wrestling match to get jammies on, which is <laughs> what it can turn into. But following that routine with consistency, even as you ride through the wave of what's called an extinction burst, right? Which which means that if you're holding a boundary consistently you know you're being effective if you see initially an increase in some behaviors, in some pushback, right? Because the kids are going, wait, is this for real? Let me, and that's testing independence, which is totally healthy, right? That means, and then that naturally, as you continue to keep that bedtime routine over trial and trial and trial and trial, particularly if you have a spicy temperament kid, right? Who might take some more trials <laughs> and, and really benefit from that consistency. And you just keep holding that line with warmth but you keep holding it, it's going to come back down. Right. And that's, that's the hard thing that we have to recognize our little ones, when they have distress, they think that feeling is going to last forever. And when we watch our kiddos have distress, we feel like their distress is going to last forever. (laughs) And it's not, you know, it's really not. I I think that is so helpful and, uh, and things tangibly people can do right now, which is, uh, you know, as a little aside as well, which is what I appreciate so much about a lot of what you guys share on Instagram. Um, so many of these things are like, oh my gosh, yes, I could go do that right now. And seeing those little wins really are so important to help you feel, like you said, the delight and, oh my gosh, this is working. I'm doing a good job. Right. Cause we all need that little like motivation. Yeah. That's so good. Um, okay, last question I would love for you guys to, to answer for us real quick. How do you handle criticism that comes with others who don't align with your parenting style? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it, it honestly kind of comes down to a lot of the same approaches <laughs> so forms and boundaries with, you know, and I'm thinking of people that are close to us where we need to preserve that relationship, right? If it's a stranger, you know, that doesn't matter so much, but if it's, you know, a parent or an in-law or someone that we have a relationship with and their views on how we're handling sleep or feeding or whatever the, the thing is, is different. We, we can hold that boundary using warmth and validation and then setting that clear boundary. And what that can look like is, you know, saying something like, I know you don't agree with how we're doing sleep. And this is working really well for our family and we're committed to this and we would love your support in this. Mm -hmm. And then I think the second piece that's so key as when we're talking about our kids' big behaviors and big emotions, as well as people we love is separating ourselves from other people's emotions. People are allowed to get upset when we set boundaries. Like we, 
our job is not to make them not be upset with it, right? Both our kids, our parents, our in-laws, our spouses. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to almost like imagine an invisible shield between us and that person and let them have that feeling and know that that's not our job. Our job is to set that boundary, to be consistent and be loving and, um, and not get caught up in fixing the emotion that that other person is experiencing. And you can validate their emotions. I know this is hard for you, mom. I know this, it doesn't feel right for you. And that's difficult. And this is how I'm choosing to parent my kiddo. Um, and I know that this is hard, you know, so we can be very loving and warm and still set a very clear boundary. And Jenna, I'm smiling while you say this, because anytime I think about, you know, holding boundaries with family, I have a, I have a big Latin family and um, culturally boundaries are a different thing for us <laughs> in that there's not as many, they're far more flexible and um, our emotions, you know, we share them pretty readily. And um, <laughs> we, I think it's been helpful for me to kind of sit back rather than I think about the email you got in terms of, you know, elicit that was clearly defensive, right? And sometimes if we choose a parenting practice that's different from our parents, it can feel personal to them. It can feel like a rejection of the choices that they made. You think that I did something wrong and that's why you're choosing to do it differently. And if we come back and rather than saying something like, well, well, we're parenting according to science, right? Or which, which then here we go again, the tug of war, the defensive tug of war. Instead, it's like, you know, I know that both ways will help our kids be healthy. And that's what you want too, right? It's just that this is the way that feels right for me, right? Neither the way that you did it also is likely great for kids. It's just not the way I'm choosing, right? Um, to reassure people that it actually the science does support that probably short of, you know, harmful parenting practices, um, the, the way that you're getting advice to do things might be somewhat benign or potentially helpful as well. It's just not your way. Absolutely. I do want to be clear. There are some harmful parenting practices. Oh, yes. (laughs) Like we talked about earlier, (laughs) right? Like, again, we are not saying throw your hands up. The kids will be fine. There is consistent cornerstone, you know, types of parenting practices that we know are healthy and unhealthy. But in terms of what we're seeing right now, culturally, the pendulum tends to swing right now in this generation to um, to being somewhat hyper anxious. I would say um, that more benign forms of stress are going to be harmful. Absolutely, and I think that's that's a good place to kind of take a deep collective like <sighs> because I for me um, we have uh, five team members at little Z's and one of them or two of them are were very into baby led weaning baby led feeding um, I'm gonna try all 100 foods before my baby turns one if you had told me that six years ago when Ellie was starting solids I would have been like <gasps> can't do it I can't <laughs> too much because we weren't even sleeping. Like, I can't do that. Like, that's too much. But that's what I think. um, And for me, the first step was like, let's get ourselves some rest. Then we can tackle, you know, eating. But I think that's what's so 
cool about being a parent right now is that there are so many different things that we have access to, which makes this question really hard, right? Like how do I deal with parents, grandparents who are like, why are you doing it that way? We have more access to things, which can make us more confused and more stressed, um, which is, it's a, it's a good and a bad thing. But um, I am so thankful for your mission to make sure that we know what's true and not be confused by the extra fluff out there. And I appreciate that. Um, so can you tell our listeners, how can they get in touch with you? How can they find you? All those good things. Yes. So on Instagram, we're at helping families thrive. Our website is um, www.helpingfamiliesthrive.com. We are currently undergoing a big website redo. So look forward to that in the next month or so. And then we're launching our parenting course in March. So we have a full course coming in March, but you can email us at contact at Helping Families Thrive or just send us a message on Instagram. Love it. Can I end with a quick call out? <laughs> um, the, the tools that Jenna and I are suggesting and sharing always is like our purpose is dissemination of existing tools and evidence-based practice, right? So if you're struggling, yes, reach out to us, follow us, all those things, of course, but also the incredible years, parent-child interaction therapy, PMTO, Triple P, these are evidence-based parenting programs that if you're struggling, please go ahead and seek that out and know that it's evidence-based. You don't have to come to us. You can seek out that information. It exists out there. And if you're wondering if something is evidence-based, please go to the California um, Evidence-Based Clearinghouse and you can look up programs there. Thank you so much for your time. This was a oh, really okay. great conversation. We'll have to have you back so you can tell us about your course. Thank yes. you, thank you, thank you. We can't thank wait. You. Thanks, Becca. Bye. Thank you guys for joining me on this episode. This is something we've never talked about before. And if you are really liking talking about different parenting philosophies, different things within the sleep training world, I want to know what you think we should talk about next. You can absolutely send us an email, support at littlezsleep.com, or drop us an Instagram DM over on at littlezsleep. And I would love to hear what you want to hear on the podcast. Thank you so much to Helping Families Thrive for joining me today. Sweet dreams, you guys. See you next time. Thank you.